0: i'm doing so well with that thank you um we're going to pray and we will uh and we'll get started on on digging into the message today um heavenly father um heavenly father there's so much i want to talk about with this psalm and and there's so much um, just treasure to be found in it and lord i pray that you would uh, give me discernment and give me wisdom and and guide my guide my words beyond what my understanding is lord i pray that that you would help me to um share the gospel effectively help me to to reflect your heart in the word today and and i pray lord that the folks who are here would hear from you that they would know you more through through this and and lord that that your holy spirit would would uh, come through in the words that people would hear from you um in in um in the message this morning in christ's name amen so uh i am a uh, a big fan of uh songs and and art and and backstory um in particular, because I always add so much weight uh, to, to the meaning behind a song, and I, I spent a chunk of my morning uh, researching. Actually, I spent a chunk of my week researching uh, songs and, and backstories that go with them. And, and the one I kept coming back to is "It Is Well with My Soul." But I've talked about it in like ten sermons, and so I don't want to. I don't want to dig into that one deeply. But it's it's one of those songs where where the backstory just adds so much to it. Um, I I. The, the thing that kept coming to mind, though, um, are you all familiar? Have any of you all ever seen the painting, um, the, the Scream? It's by Edward Monk. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. But it's the guy with his hands on his cheeks. And he's on a bridge, and he's hollering. And, and I, I read a few years ago about this painting, and, and I guess it was painted during a time when European politics were out of control and, and everybody was terrified about what would happen next. And it seemed like the whole world was off, off its axis, and everything was, you know, terrifying. And the artist did this painting, and it, it sort of expresses his angst and his fear about what's going on, you know, and this, the scream. And it, the first time I read that about this painting, I said, oh, my gosh, that's fantastic. Um, another, another thing I came across, um, the song Let It Be, the Beatles. You all have heard this, right? I'm the only Beatles fan. Um, anyway, um, the – The song, Let It Be, always thought it was a religious song. I would hear this, you know, uh, Mother Mary comes to me speaking words of wisdom. Let it be, let it be. And I I always assumed that that Paul had written this as this deeply religious, you know, spiritual thing. And as it turns out, it was right before the Beatles broke up and there was all kinds of conflict. And he had a dream about his mom, whose name was Mary. And she said, don't worry, it'll be all right. And then he wrote this song. Yep. (laughs) Ruined it for me. Um, As we get into the Psalms this, this summer. We're going to be doing a series on the book of Psalms. I, I try to do Old Testament primarily in the summer. Um, some of these are, are hugely enriched by the backstory. And Psalm 3 is probably my favorite example of this. And, and so we're going to be in Psalm 3 today. Um, we're going to be digging into it. There's a little bit of history and a little bit of backstory um, as we jump into it. Before, before we get far, understand um, the Psalms... The Psalms are tricky. Um, they're, they're not straightforward. It's not like reading the book of you know, Romans where Paul just kind of lays it all out, and it's just very technical and structured, and you can explain it. And it's not like reading Jesus' teachings where it's got this certain way about it. When you read the Psalms, the Psalms are like emotional, and they're intellectual, and they're musical, and there's all these elements that play into it, and it makes them just terribly difficult to preach right. Um, it's really tempting to English teacher them. You know what I mean? Where you you overly technical and actually there's all kinds of information that I, I could share with you this morning about the poetry of this psalm and the parallels, and I'm not going to do that today. So no English teaching for Merrick, probably. Uh, <laughs> and there was much rejoicing. Um, so So this song, though, is a very emotional song, and it happens like – I'm going to subscribe to a particular theory about it as I share it with you. There's a couple of variations on this. I think David wrote this on the run, okay? I think this is a worst day of David's life psalm. Things are falling apart. The whole world is disintegrating, and David writes this song in the process. Um, and at first, I read that originally, and I'm like, well, how is that even possible? You're being chased by an army. How are you going to stop and write a song? But then I, I uh, earlier this week, I went for a walk, and I realized, man, walking a mile, it takes a little while, right? You walk 20 miles or 25 miles in a day, you got some time to think. And so I'm guessing that David had time to sit down and work through this as he was running for his life. Everybody with me? Um, so uh, real quick, some background on David's life. We all know King David was the second king of Israel right? And David got his throne from Saul, who was the first king, and he was not a very good king. He, he um, offended God repeatedly, and eventually God said, all right, well, you're done, and now David's going to be king, and there's a lot of violence and conflict in the overthrow. Um, David tried to, you know, I think David was righteous in how he ended up on the throne. Um, Saul was kind of a turkey and made some really poor choices. Um, so David ends up king in Saul's place but Saul's descendants and his family are still around y'all with me so you know David is running from this uprising and his family like his enemies families are still all around so this is a real thing Um, and it's going to play into what we're doing here Um, as far as David goes now watch this David we all know David had one big mess up right and it's hard to call it a mess up because it's worse than that. David fell in love with his neighbor's wife, um, invites her over, has an affair with her, uh, and then when she gets pregnant, he basically has her husband Uriah um, murdered um, because he wants to keep his his you know indiscretion a secret. Um, and so he, Uriah is a soldier; he's off at war, and and David sends out orders, and he has Uriah put on the front lines, and and. In the heat of the battle, everybody backs up and just leaves Uriah to die. And, and that's what happened. Uriah dies in battle, and, and David's able to take Bathsheba into his home and marry her. And, and eventually it comes out. Nathan the prophet comes and calls out David, and David owns it and repents, and some other bad stuff happens. And God, through Nathan, tells him, Look, what you've done is bad, and because of it, you're going to have no peace and all of these problems are going to come through your family. And um, and, and they do. And they do in a bad way. Um, it starts with uh, one of his sons, um, Amnon. Amnon falls in love with his half-sister, Tamar. Tamar is not interested in dating in the family. I, you know. Uh, and she rejects his advances. And so Amnon takes advantage of his sister. Um, and, and it's bad. Right. And she goes away wailing and tells her father and her father backs up and he has lost a position of moral authority because what's he going to say? Right. I mean, David screwed up really big and his kids are wild now and he won't step in and act. And and so nobody does anything about it. Amnon gets away with it, which gets the younger son, Absalom, very angry. Absalom takes Tamar into his home, says, all right, we're going to stop talking about this and we're going to drop it for now. And he drops it for several years until he has a party and invites Amnon over and murders him um, and goes into hiding, runs off and goes into hiding in a foreign land and, and is in hiding for several years and finally gets permission to come home. And when he comes home, David won't talk to him. And he finally comes to David and bows before him and, you know, repents and everything else. And David lets him come back in and, and having come back into the family, Absalom starts thinking to himself, well, look. My dad didn't do anything about this wicked thing that happened, and I did. Maybe I should be king. It kind of makes sense, right? And so Absalom starts plotting. And what he does, and this is, it doesn't sound all that clever, but if you start getting to the root of like, first century culture, what he does is he goes every day to the city gates of Jerusalem, and he hangs out just right in the city gates. Now, in the ancient world... Um, the city gate would have a throne, um, a lot of like big cities, they would have a throne, and the king or a high official would hang out at the gate all day and preside over court cases, right? And and so what Absalom does is he hangs out, and every time somebody comes with a dispute or a lawsuit, he would stop them and say, hey, what what's going on with you guys? And he'd hear that out, and he'd say, oh, here's what you should do, and he would judge for them. He'd say, too bad there isn't a king who's willing to step up. And take care of your justice for you. Too bad I'm not king. And then he sent them on their way. And day after day after day after day, he does this until he builds a following. And then one day, Absalom rises up with an army, and chases David out of his home and takes over the country. Right? And so David goes on the run. And David, um, David doesn't want to kill his child. Right? I mean, anybody. Well, I mean, occasionally. But not literally, right? Like most of us aren't lining up to murder our kids or to, you know, kill them even when they, they you know. Anyway, we're going to get into that too detailed. Um, and so David um, doesn't want his son to die. And in fact, when he finally takes back the throne, he gives his officer's orders, do not harm my son. Do not kill my son. And as soon as they're out of earshot, the, the general who's over his army say, all right, guys, first one to kill Absalom wins. He is not surviving today. And, and that's what happens. But, but David doesn't want to kill his son. David doesn't want to, want to do what, in fact, actually his generals have to talk him into fighting back because David is a, is a defanged lion, kind of. He is, he is done fighting. He will not raise a hand against his family. Um, and a lot of folks think it's because of the, the, um, Bathsheba, um, um, sin that he committed. So this is our backstory as we jump into this. He wrote this psalm on the run. Got it? Like, the armies have risen up and captured the capital. He is leaving with his advisors. He's left his wives behind. And Absalom comes in and basically says, all right, well, all my dad's wives are mine now. And, like, desecrates them in public, which we're not getting into in depth today. Um, he, he, the whole thing is a disaster. But in the process of running away and escaping, David writes this song. And so, like, understanding the weight of this. I mean, can we all agree this is a bad situation for David? He's humiliated. He's been betrayed by someone he loves dearly. People are out trying to kill him. He, he's not king anymore, which is probably a pretty big deal. Um, he you know, feels abandoned. He's, people are trying. I mean, he is on the run for his life. And what does he do? He writes a song. Um, one last thing. There's a word in there. Selah, right? Selah is a Hebrew word. We have no idea what it means, just so you know. Actually, it's not that we have no idea. We don't have a clear, direct translation. Translationally is a difficult word, right? Um, and that's why I had Rebecca play this song today, right? Did you all listen to the offering song? Every once in a while in that offering song, she would stop and it would be quiet, right? And that there's an effect to that, isn't there? I mean, it kind of, like where all of a sudden it's just, or where it'll, the words die down and it's just music. And there's just this emotional weight to the music. Or where the music will stop and they'll keep, you know, and she kept singing. And there's kind of this, you know, when you go acapella, it's almost like an exclamation point in the song. Are you all following me? Um, say la is an added thing. Um, it's a musical note. And it either means, like, stop and silence um, or it might mean go to a musical interlude. Some people think it means a refrain, but the support for that as a as a thing is not as strong. Um, but we're gonna, we're going to go with the popular understanding that this is a break. Um, and it's a break that adds emotional exclamation point. It is a It is a hammer landing in the middle of the song over and over again. Um, because this is a sad song. It is a powerful, sad song. Um, So diving into the text, finally, there's only eight verses. We're actually going to start before the first verse. um, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, meaning David wrote this while he's running away. It's not considered to be a part of the verse. There's a lot of folks who wonder whether or not this was added, like when the text was assembled or what. Um, Real quick, this would have been used regularly in worship. Um, It's assumed it's a morning worship song. Got it? psalm 4 is an evening worship song so we're going to do psalm 4 next week and so these this one would be done in the morning and this one would be done in the evening and throughout the history of the church there have been groups who every morning as a part of worship would get up and they would recite this song because it is a morning song um, it is also a song of protection for the king they would sing it to like, pray that God would protect the king. Um, it was sung specifically. This is not a responsive reading. It's not a poem. It's not a... This is a song. So, verses 1 and 2. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Now, watch this. An army is chasing him. <laughs> Everybody got that? Like There's sometimes this temptation to try and like relate to songs. This is a tougher one to relate to because... Most of us don't ever have an army rise up against us, right? I mean, like, three or four kids might, you know, I'm going to pick on Carly. I mean, you've almost got an army living in your house, and if all your kids banded together, it might feel that way. But you could probably take most of them. Um, This is a literal army that has risen up and is riding horses with swords and spears and chariots and everything else coming to kill David. How many... Of my own people are rising up against me. The people who are supposed to be, you know, my people. This is a growing rebellion. This is more and more. And this includes his son. Um, the next king like has come out to fight him. Um, now, as we interpret this text, by the way, there's a cool thing here. Watch this. Um, the Psalms are powerful because... We can read them in their original context and see what's going on, but we can also turn around and we can look, and this is one of those psalms where you can see some of the life of Christ in it. Are you all with me? Um, And if we go to this last couple days of Jesus' life, right, you know, the enemies of Christ had arisen and they were all around him, you get the Pharisees and the Sadducees and you've got the Romans, and you've got all these people who are rising up against him and plotting against him, including Judas, who's in his own group. And then you've got, you know, his own disciples who abandon him. Peter, who swears at a little girl, Swear, you know, I don't know that guy, you know, bleep, 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 you know. And, and Christ is there at the end, and his enemies are all around him. And actually, all of his friends have run off, and he is on his own. Um, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. So he says this line, and it's a break, and everybody looks quiet. Um, this first stanza, basically, is the statement of problem. There are enemies everywhere, and they're out to get me. And people are saying, God will not save this guy. By the way, they're not saying God is not capable of saving him. They're saying God will not save this man. Um, we're going to, uh, real quick as an aside, as David is running away, watch this. As David is running away, he is, he's out there, he's got his, his entourage, they're fleeing from the capital. David was near the town of Behirim um, when a man came out and started cursing him. The man was Shemi. Shemi. I'm going to say it Shemi. My Hebrew's bad. The son of Gera. And he was of. He was one of Saul's distant relatives. He threw stones at David, at his soldiers, and at everyone else, including the bodyguards who walked on each side of David. Shimei was yelling at David, get out of here, you murderer. You good for nothing. The Lord is The Lord is paying you back for killing so many in Saul's family. You stole his kingdom, but now the Lord has given it to your son, Absalom. You're a murderer, and that's why you're in such big trouble. Um, Abishai uh, said, your majesty, this man is as useless as a dead dog. He shouldn't be allowed to curse you. Let me go over there and chop his head off. Anybody wish they had friends like that? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) David replied, What will I ever do with you and your brother Joab? If Shimei is cursing me because the Lord has told him to, then who are you to tell him to stop? Then David said to Abishai, um, and all his soldiers, my own son is trying to kill me. Why shouldn't this man from the tribe of Benjamin want me dead even more? Let him curse all he wants. Maybe the Lord did tell him to curse me. But if the Lord hears these curses and sees the trouble I'm in, maybe He will have pity on me instead. And David said to the other. David and the others went on down the road. Shimei went along. Uh, went along the hillside by the road, cursing and throwing rocks and dirt at him when David and those who with him came to the Jordan River, they were tired out. but after they rested, they felt they felt much better there 's a handful of things going on there first off, Shimmy is following him around, and he 's murderer i actually when I read this, I kept thinking of the the section in um where in in the Princess Bride where Princess Buttercup comes out and her crown and her and her, you know, gown and, and the old woman says, Boo! You can't even say it louder, Rebecca. I knew you'd be the one who'd say it. <laughs> Boo! And she starts yelling at her. She, you had true love and you're not marrying your true love. You're marrying the crummy king, you know. And why would you do that? You're... And she doesn't say, you're wrong. She basically says, yeah, I deserve this, right? I mean, that's the nightmare. I deserve this. And that's where David is. This shimmy guy is there. He's throwing rocks at the king. I, I, I'm going to tell you, like, in the ancient world, it took, a, like, very little to have your head cut off, right? Like, if they wanted you dead, you were in a lot of trouble. You know, that life was very cheap in the ancient world. What this man did, it, I mean, he, he is lucky he survived it. And, in fact, actually, when David comes back to power, he shows up again and grovels and says, all right, sorry about all that misunderstanding. Please don't kill me. And David says, no, no, you know, don't worry. I won't kill you. For now. Um, Nobody in my... As long as I'm alive, you will not be harmed. Um, So, you know, this man comes out. You know, oh, there is no salvation in God because you deserve this. And David says, yeah, you're right. I do. Right? Man, that's a low spot. Anybody been there? You know, actually, it doesn't even have to be that, like, things are that bad. There are days... You know, where you lay in bed and you think, man, I'm a terrible person. How could anybody love me, much less God? You know, oh, my gosh, I've committed these sins. I've rebelled in these ways. Like, how can I ever be right again? How can anything ever be right again? This is where he's at, and Shemai is there, or Shimi is there helping him out. Like, hey, God hates you. This is on you. By the way, this should sound slightly familiar, right? There is no salvation for him in God. Um, as Christ hung on the cross... Like his accusers stood around and what did they yell out? You know, well, hey, look, he saved other people. Why can't he save himself? You know, if the, I, the Ten Commandments, or, yeah, the Ten Commandments, I, I kept thinking about that line Where's your Messiah now? Right? I mean, this is the spot that Christ was in, um, humiliated and broken and, and before his enemies, and they're rising up against him. And here he is. And it ends with a salah, and there's quiet. This painful, powerful section, and then silence. Jump on to three and four. Did it go? Yeah. All right. Um, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Um, There are a few things here. Uh, Anybody see Gladiator. I love Gladiator. It's a great movie. And there's a great scene in Gladiator where the soldiers um, are being attacked by, you know, the, the Roman soldiers. And they gather up with their shields and they, you know, kind of sh- make a turtle, right? And everybody holds up their shields and they protect themselves all the way around. Or, or you know, this might, another way to look at this would be like this, you know, in, in a sci-fi film, you get your force field, right? Like this is this is, you know, God, you are... A protector. You are everywhere around me. In the ancient world, a shield was, you know, big, round, and heavy, and it was the thing that protected you, right? Um, David is going so far to say, "Lord, you're not just a shield in front of me, or a shield beside me, and over me, and behind me. He has got accusers and attackers everywhere, and God, you are protecting me." By the way, if you want to jump to a New Testament parallel here, right? Um, Paul gives us a great set of like, like analogy, you know, put on the helmet of salvation, right? And the shield of faith that protects you from the flaming darts of the enemy. The flaming darts of the enemy in Paul's words is like accusation. It is Satan coming out and saying, you are worthless. These are your sins. These are the ways you've offended God. These are your, your faults. This is your worthlessness. This is all the just garbage about you. And, and that is Satan's job. He brings out this garbage over and over again and accuses. He stands before God's throne and says, hey, that guy doesn't even love you. He's only on your side because of dot, 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 like he did with Job, right? But we have our shield of faith, and that is a shield that protects us entirely from Satan's accusations. We can back up and say, I have faith that Christ died for my sins. I have faith that Jesus bore my sins on the cross, and if I belong to him, I am forgiven, and you protect me on all sides. You are you are the one who literally guards me all the way around. You are my salvation, God. Um, he's coming out, and he's saying, listen, God is this shield. He's the ultimate protector. My glory and the one who lifts my head. By the way. This psalm is loaded with military analogies, and I suspect it's probably really easy to use military words when you're marching in a column of people running away from the enemy, right? Like, there, are, there are soldiers everywhere, and he is using military analogies, and one of them is the word glory. Glory, from Hebrew here, is heavy, right? You are my heavy, which sounds like a weird thing to say, except that when soldiers went into battle, they went in light, right and when they got done killing the enemy they would collect their paycheck generally off of the dead body of the other guy um, and they would come out heavy right like which was in the ancient world you know that that is Actually, went on through the medieval era, actually quite a while, where an army would sack a town. You would siege a town. It was grueling and miserable and sickening. And a lot of times siege armies would get sick in the field or people would abandon because they're just hanging out and waiting. Or they're terrified or running against the walls or whatever. And once you sacked a town, once you captured a town, you got to steal whatever you wanted and leave. And so like in the ancient world, if you went into battle light, you came out heavy Because you got the stuff that was worth having. And so when he says, listen, God, you are my glory, meaning you are the thing worth having. Like you are my victory. You are the prize at the end of the race. You are the you you are it for me, God. You are all I want. And so he is there with nothing. And he says, God, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. Um. Oh, golly, I can't even imagine where David's at. He's probably walking down the road, dejected and defeated, and staring at the ground and thinking, What else is there, right? I mean, anybody ever feel that way where you're so depressed you can barely get your head up? Really? Just no one okay. Um, this is who God is. God is the lifter of his head. God is the thing worth having in his life. Doesn't matter how much else he loses, God is God has given him this. Um I cried out to the Lord, I, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. Meaning, David turned in his brokenness and in his, his fear, and he says, God, I know I can trust you, I know you are protecting me, I know you are all around me, I know you lift my head, I know you're the only thing worth having, and I'm crying out to you, and you're going to answer me. His holy hill, by the way, if you go to Jerusalem, um, Jerusalem is built on the side of a hill. Kind of interesting. And the holy hill is where the temple is. And so he is literally like facing Jerusalem and praying, God, you hear me. I mean, we, I, I used to read this when I was younger. I'd read this and it almost became like Mount Olympus somewhere out there. You know, it's this mythical place where God hangs out. This is Jerusalem. He's talking about his capital. Hey, God, you're at my house still, that they're taking care of right now. I know you hear me. I know you're in my home, and I'm coming back, and I know you've got me. Um, how powerful of a spot is that to be, right? And again, he stops on that, full stop. God, I know you've got me. I trust you. I trust you. How hard is that to say? I mean, and, I mean, it, golly, sometimes it's hard to say when things aren't that bad. Sometimes it's hard to say when things are sort of mediocre bad. You start pulling the scale of bad all together. I was reading about um, stress, and and we think things are stressful like traffic. I mean, we don't have real traffic in Montana. Um, you know, you get stuck behind the combine and you got to wait an extra two minutes to get down the road until you get over the hill and you can pass them. Um, you know, but I, I remember commuting and it would take me an hour to drive to downtown Chicago every day when I was when I was working there, and and most of it was me just sitting there. And after a little while, you're thinking, couldn't the guy in the front of the line just drive forward? You know, and it just feels so stressful. And you go to work and you get deadlines and that feels so stressful. And there's a scale they use to measure stress. And actually that stuff's really, really low. And like the really high stuff is like the death of a spouse. Right? Bankruptcy. Um, Terminal illness. Uh, You know, a child abandoning you. Uh, You start scaling it out And ultimately most of the stress we deal with on a daily basis is really just not that big a deal But it is hard even in the low-key stress to say God, I know you're protecting me God, I know you're on my side God, I know you are in like the promised land And you are waiting for me And you hear me and you answer me Full stop, salah, right? God, the world is broken God, I know you've got this And we stop again for emphasis And there's quiet we know God's in control. Five and six, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Um, I can remember, anybody ever not be able to like get a sleep, get to sleep at night? You have a bad day and you lay down and you can't stop thinking, you know, or there's that running joke about, well, I go to bed at night and this is when my brain decides to remember how I got humiliated in junior high. Hey, it's time to visit these files. (laughs) Let's bring it to the forefront. You know, hey, did I turn the stove off? (laughs) Let's bring that up front. Hey, is it going to rain next week? Or I'm going to, you know, hey, is it going to, hey, is it? We worry about all these things. I got to imagine that in David's spot, I mean, how do you even sleep in that position, right? People are out to kill me. My son wants to kill me. I, I'm at fault. This is my fault. But David says, I laid down and slept by the way. That's where second Samuel, that, that section ends, right? They get to the Jordan river followed all day by shimmy throwing rocks and dirt and accusing and they stop and they sleep and they're refreshed, right? David says, I'm able to get down and sleep and I wake again for the Lord sustains me, um, He's able to sleep because he backs up and he says, I know you've got this. I know you've got this. Um, A pastor I really like, I read a book he wrote on marriage and and being a husband. And one of the things he said was, you should always be the kind of husband where your word is so definite in the lives of the people around you that all you have to say is, I got this. And everybody's okay. Right? Like where when you, you say to your wife, hey, I'll take care of this. She knows. You're going to take care of it, and you're going to do a good job. You know, if, if if you say, I'm in control, I will take care of it, it's it's comfort to her. This is how God is, right? God says, I got this. You know, and so David's able to say, I trust you, and now I'm able even to rest, and I'm able to wake up. I am okay, because I know, I know you've got this. The Lord sustained me. St. Augustine um Saint Augustine talks about this passage as being very much about Christ on the cross. He's rejected. Um, he's accused. God won't save you. And then he comes to this section and he says, I lay down and slept, and I woke again because the Lord sustained me. Meaning Christ was dead, buried, and risen because God because the Holy Spirit raised him, because he was like in God's hands, like he belonged to him. Um what do we do with that? I, I don't know. I, I went back and forth. I think it's worth mentioning. Like, like, the reality is that Christ, Christ died knowing he would be resurrected. I don't think it made it easier. And I don't think it makes it easier for us to go through hardship knowing that, oh, it'll be all right. God's got me. By the way, oh, it'll be all right. God got, God's got me sometimes means that the roof's going to cave in. Are you all with me? Um, we have to make some assumptions. God is there. God is good. God wants the best for me. And so whatever happens is is his deal. Sometimes that means sometimes that means the roof caves in. Sometimes it means the boat sinks. Sometimes it means, you know, the illness is permanent. Sometimes it means, you know, that that the relationship ain't going to be reconciled. Sometimes it means I can't undo the damage I've done. Sometimes it means but at the end of the day, if God's in control, it's okay, right? At the end of the day, if God's got it, we have to trust him. It means we can lay down and sleep and know, you know what? God's got it. As it Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you know, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Um, I laid down and slept because God's got me, and I get up again refreshed because God sustains me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves around, who have set themselves against me all around. Um, again, this is a military phrase. It's like like an exclamation of, of armies come against me, and I trust God. Armies rise up, and I trust God. Things seem out of control, and I trust God. Is that easy? No, I don't think David thought it was easy. Otherwise, he wouldn't have written about it, right? Otherwise, this wouldn't be a painful song. Otherwise, this would be actually it would steal all the power out of it, wouldn't it? I mean, it's kind of cool. I hear stories from folks who say this happened and this happened and this happened, and on the other side of it, I can see how God's hand was in all of it. Man, that's something, isn't it? Going through, it's awful. Arise, O Lord, save me, O God. Now, here is something I did not know, and I've read this psalm a million times over the years. Arise, O Lord, this phrase in Hebrew was used over and over again when they would get the Ark of the Covenant out to go to battle. It was like the part of, the, part of the, the prayer that they would recite as they got the Ark up and they sent it out to lead them into battle, right? Arise, O Lord. Um, And so David has shifted gears from, I find refreshment in you to, all right, God, let's go get them. (laughs) Let's do this. Come on. Save me, oh my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. That's a fun one. Um, There's a collection of Psalms called called the imprecatory Psalms. They're all about, like, God avenge me against my enemies. We're going to talk about a few of those this summer, but, like, we're not going to get into it right now. This is a powerful statement. Strike my enemy on the cheek. Um, What this is, in the ancient world, if you walked up and you struck someone on the cheek, it was an insult. It's probably an insult now, right? Um, But this is, God insult my enemies, humiliate them. And I I think, you know, we almost see this. Shimmy comes back and says, oh, wow, David, please don't kill me. You know, please, please don't kill me. Please don't kill my family. Please don't kill any of us. I am so sorry, right? Oh, I am so sorry. Like, strike my enemies on the cheek means humiliate them, Lord. I don't just want to win this. I want you to humiliate them. I think the most powerful part of this, again, is we come back around and at the cross, what did Christ do? Christ crushed Satan's head is is something that Paul tells us, right? You know, he, he defeats death. He humiliates it. What's the... The line, oh, death, where's your sting? You are a humiliated enemy, right? And David comes around and says, God, humiliate my enemies. Don't just beat them, humiliate them. You break the teeth of the wicked. All right, well, there are a lot of things to do with this. First off, broken teeth are the most gross and horrible thing in the whole world, right? Um, A lot of folks assume that this is about wild animals, ever been bitten by a dog or a cat no oh, no I'm sorry a cat <laughs> um cats man they bite right dogs bite too but you know cats um but a dog or a cat without teeth you know what else is there we I mean, cats have claws cuz they're Satan. um but <laughs> the the, the assumption here is like this. He's talking about like almost like a wild animal that's been neutered. Like it can't even fight. It is not dangerous. You know, it's it's this scary thing that can't fight back. Um, I I think that uh, there's a strong case to be made that this means shut their mouths so they can't talk. Right? Anybody ever wish that would happen? You turn on the news and you're like, oh my gosh, I wish these people would shut up. Right? You hear the gossip around town and your name happens to be attached to it and you think, why can't people just shut up? That is a mean word. I know some of you guys are like, oh, my gosh, he said shut up. Um, Abby, don't use that, that phrase. Uh, <laughs> but that is, that is the idea here. Lord, shut their mouths. Don't let them, don't let them keep going. Just shut their mouths. Um, stop this for me. Um, What do we do with that line when you find yourself backing up and saying, God can never really love me because I did these things? That's Satan accusing you. It is the truth, right? And at the end of the day, like, we can back up and say, no, no. No, no. Your head is crushed. You are a defeated enemy. I'm righteous because I'm a follower of Jesus. I've got his righteousness on me. My past is gone. Shut your mouth. Right. Um, There'll be a day when we stand before God in eternity and everybody who's an accuser, everybody who's an enemy will have their mouths shut. There'll be nothing else to say. Um, This is where David is. Shut the mouths of my enemies. Shut them up. Big haymaker here, right? Like this is uh, Spurgeon, the prince of preachers said that this was his, you know, like he he finished his sermon on Psalm three with this. And it's it's a theological haymaker is the way I read it uh described. It is a big solid punch. Salvation be- belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people, Selah. And so he ends with the only thing that can save me is God. Right? The only hope I have is God. There's a line in uh oh gosh, I think it was John Owen that said it. I'm I'm gonna have to look it up now because I've used it several times. The only thing you bring to your salvation is the need to be saved in the first place. Right? <laughs> salvation belongs to God, period. I'm not going to be smart enough to raise up an army. I'm not going to be this. I'm not going to be that. You know what actually got Absalom in the end? He was riding in battle and his hair. He had this long, flowing hair. And it got caught in some branches of a tree. And he got hung up. And it left him exposed. And somebody come up and stabbed him. Like, (laughs) it, like, like, God delivers his people. And that is what it is. Like, you from your sins, you from your situation, you from everything else, like salvation belongs to him. And sometimes he doesn't save us from our situation because it helps us be saved from our sins. And sometimes he doesn't save us from this because it's part of his will elsewhere. Um, but at the end of the day, we have to back up and say, you know what, God's in charge. Salvation belongs to him. He is, he is my only hope. He is, he is my glory. My treasure at the end of the day is him. And it ends with a Selah and everything goes quiet again, right? Like that song, quiet. What do we do with this psalm? Well, for starters, I think this is one of those psalms that you memorize, that you memorize and you come back to when everything is screwed up as it's going to get. Right? You come back to it and say, you know what? I know I got enemies all around me. I know that there are people circling around me, and I know you're in charge. I know I'm stuck, but I trust you. I know that it seems hopeless, but I, I know you got me, God. I know I'm hopeless right now, but you got me. Um, over and over again, we come to that. And, and not after the fact. This is a song David probably wrote on the run, like running away. His son trying to kill him, David wrote a song about it. Man, I think there's power in coming back to God over and over again, emotional, crying, angry, frustrated, the whole nine yards, and talking to him and saying, God, you're in charge, you got me. God, you're in charge, you got me. Um, I'm going to close this in prayer, and I will let you go for the day. Um, and don't forget, we, we do need folks to go to the nursing home today. Um, is a big deal. Uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with us this morning. Um, I pray that you would help us to trust in you and to lean on you and rely on you in our time of difficulty. Lord, when it seems like there are enemies all around us calling out against us, Lord, I pray that you would give us hope and give us peace in it. Um, help us to come back to you over and over again when everything seems, seems lost and know that salvation belongs to you alone, you alone, only in Christ, only by his blood, only by your grace, only by your power, Lord, are we saved. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, real quick, one last thing. Uh, on his deathbed, so- uh, David is laying there. He's dying, and his last command, he gets Solomon in, and he says, all right, Solomon, here's what I want you to do. I promise Shimmy that I would not kill him during my lifetime. When I'm dead, I need you to go kill him. <laughs> um, don't carry wretchedness with you. Um, This is a part of David's life that was broken and messed up. Don't carry it with you. In your lostness, in your salvation, no. God is Jimmy's salvation, too. And he's, you know, every political enemy's salvation. He's your neighbor's enemy. He's that guy who's gossiping about you. That guy's salvation. Like, we're going to close. Well, yeah. Have a good day, guys.